Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor at Prospect magazine, and this week I'll be talking to the journalist Christian Davis about Poland's authoritarian turn and what it could mean for Europe as a whole. In the latest issue of Prospect, out now on newsstands and online, Christian writes an essay about the nostalgic nationalists of the ultra-conservative Law and Justice Party, which is tightening its grip on the country which, not so long ago, the West viewed as the very model of a new liberal democracy. And Christian warns that this could eventually have one consequence that no one's foreseen yet a drift for Poland towards the orbit of Russia. (laughs) Greetings, Christian. You know Poland well. You've been there for most, I think, of the, or a lot of the last five years or so. And uh, I mean, my sense is probably five years ago, it didn't seem that long uh, ago since it had been the West's star pupil from the class of 1989. It's certainly true that if you look at the last 30 years as a whole, then Poland is a remarkable success story, Um, not just given its longer term history of the last couple of centuries and, of course, the 20th century, um, when it appeared on the map at the end of the First World War, then was uh, divided and destroyed by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and then endured 40 years of Soviet communism, only to emerge as a a relatively successful uh, liberal democracy, certainly successful economically. And actually, its democracy felt very deeply rooted until, as you say, only only a few years ago. And in a sense, Poland was the country that proved to Westerners uh, that their values and that their uh, way of life uh, was right. This was, some people use the phrase, uh, star pupil, which some in Poland may find slightly patronising. But nonetheless, (laughs) the West can be patronising. Um, but also it, it was more than that. It was a, it was a sense of confirmation um, that even countries that have endured uh, have some of the worst fates that any nation can endure, historically speaking, um, uh, could confirm that we were right all along in our values. And, and you have this argument in your piece that, um, you know, this isn't even a sort of one generation or one century story that really, in some sense, it was written in Poland's last thousand years that its fate, its destiny uh, belonged with the, with the West. Well, of course, 
this idea of a thousand years of of history in Poland having a Western destiny uh, comes in a sense from the conversion of the Polish king in the 10th century to Roman Catholicism, which set the the Poles and many of the Western Slavs on a different path from the Eastern Slavs uh, Orthodox uh, path. That, of course, meant that Poland, historically speaking, was always on this uh, religious and, in, to some extent, uh, cultural, civilizational fault line through the center of Europe. But, of course, being a country, sometimes a very large and powerful country, sometimes a, a less powerful country and sometimes a country that didn't exist formally on the map at all, uh, Poland's direction, Poland's fate, uh, Eastern or Western uh, or, or neither, uh, has always been contested in Poland. And the idea that Poland would always be a Western country in the modern sense of a Western liberal democracy anchored in Western economic uh, and uh, political and security institutions um, has always been a little bit of a myth. Of course, it can be a, a very positive myth in the sense that that's what uh, gave uh, the free Poland the uh, the motivation and the incentive to um, to make these great strides in the last 30 years. But it's always been contested. There have always been anti-Western Poles uh, hundreds of years ago as there are now. And it's very complacent both for liberal Poles and uh, for uh, Westerners themselves to assume that somehow uh, Poland's history, its, its suffering at the hands of Russia in particular, would mean that Poland would always be uh, a dedicated and committed Western country. This is actually not underpinned by history. Okay, well, let's drill down now into the phenomenon, which is the thing that you think is putting this, this kind of Western alignment at risk. The, the Law and Justice Party, um, very dominant for the last five years, but quite a force going back a bit further than that. What is it and where does it come from? Where, you know, is, is it right to think of it as an ultra-conservative party or is it something else? Law and justice is better understood in terms of uh, psychology than in terms of ideology. Um, uh, the solidarity movement, which uh, helped to liberate Poland from communism in the 1980s, always had different uh, ideological factions, although uh, in Western terms they were all broadly centre-right to centre-left. This coalition of, of solidarity broke down very quickly after the fall of communism in 1989 for the simple reason that they no longer were united by a common enemy. But this split actually represented a much deeper, centuries-old split to a certain extent uh, in the Polish psyche and in Polish politics between a democratic pro-European uh, approach and a more conservative and nationalist approach. Uh, one which emphasised Poland's historic diversity, both in terms of religion and race. Uh, Poland now is a very homogenous country, but historically had a lot of um, ethnic and religious minorities, most obviously Polish Jews, but also Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Germans, uh, and so on. And of course, it used to have a much higher level of uh, Protestants and Calvinists and, and non-Catholic non subjects as well. Um, and the, uh, the more conservative nationalist tradition, which is sees both the world in terms of an external threat, in terms of Poland's neighbours, but also the internal threat, 
opposed by its diversity, treacherous minorities collaborating with foreign powers and so on. And these two traditions manifested themselves after 1989 in terms of a broadly democratic, pro-European, liberal trend. And this was dominant in the 1990s and, and 2000s, which a mix of uh, former communists and, uh, and liberal former solidarity people uh, driving Poland's Western orientation. And then a conservative and nationalist trend more focused on on the negative aspects of the last 30 years, the people who lost out from the institution of a free market economy, but also a broader sense that Poland culturally was losing what, whatever made it uh, distinctive. So if you imagine Poland, broadly speaking, has been on a liberal trajectory uh, for most of the 30, last 30 years, the last five years in particular are best understood uh, as a backlash against liberal economics uh, and, and politics. And law and justice is, in a sense, has managed to, um, to gather um, various different resentments and frustrations, some legitimate, some not really justified, some imagined, um, and turn it into a very potent political force, uh, which is uh, designed to overturn not just the social trends of the last 30 years, but also the liberal democratic constitutional order that, that has underpinned those changes uh, in recent decades. I mean, a lot of what you're saying, I think, chimes with some of what Anne Applebaum's written about Poland and, and the people who are on the same side she remembers at parties, you know, a generation ago and uh, would now cross the road to avoid each other because the common enemy of communism has gone but I wonder whether you and maybe her as well need to give a bit more thought to, you did briefly mention it there, you know, the people for whom the last few years haven't been so good, you know, in social policy terms, as I understand it, the uh, Law and Justice Party is very generous with family benefits for people who've got big children, for example. And for a lot of people, that's going to be more important maybe than all the culture war stuffs or even the independence of the judges. Yes, well, of, of course, uh, Anne Applebaum will have to speak for her own writing and I'll, I'll speak for mine. I think uh, it's sometimes assumed that the liberals in Poland or people who have take a liberal view on events uh, in Poland are indifferent to the, the suffering or the plight of those in Poland who've been le less fortunate. Of course, when you're uh, an advocate for the the liberal democratic order of the last 30 years, then perhaps it's possible to overlook some of the, the, the downsides of that. Of course, having lived in Poland for the last five years, you see that actually the well-being of the poor in Poland is really not very high uh, on the on the present government's agenda. There's a lot of attention which is given to, uh, to the welfare payments, uh, generous uh, welfare payments. These, of course, are, are generous only in one particular way, and these are very highly ideological in the sense that this is essentially a crude welfare payment per child to any, uh, for any mother who gives birth to a child, whilst at the same time um, uh, essentially paying women not to work has been the, uh, has been the effect of that. Um, very little investment in nursery uh, uh, provision in the wider apparatus of the Polish state that will allow women uh, women to work. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the capacity of the Polish state, which is, which is in common with many Western uh, European countries, 
um, has been uh, degraded over that time. Uh, the Polish health service is in a dreadful state. The Polish education service is in a dreadful state. So um, what we have a, a, an example, which of course happens in many countries, is one issue like a child welfare payment uh, becomes somehow representative in people's minds of uh, of reality. But of course, it's only symbolic in one narrow area and does not uh, constitute a wider generosity in terms of uh, the social transfers in Poland or, or social provision. M more importantly, this is not a question of the haves and have-nots in Poland. Law and justice, why someone votes for law and justice or as opposed to a liberal or, or a different party is uh, not really to do either with income or even education or geography, which is some of the things that is uh, generally, generally assumed. Of course, uh, what we tend to do, as, uh, as everyone does, is to transpose our own political debate onto another country's. And so we look at it in terms of maybe Brexit, the Brexit division, and uh, that you may be in a certain part of the country or may have a certain level of education, which is lower than the average, then you're more likely to vote in a certain way. But in Poland, actually, Although those things are true, you can map these things onto age and geography and, and education to a certain extent. This is actually a much, much deeper psychological division which runs right through the nation. Um, and it divides families, it divides towns, it divides regions. And why people um, see the world in a certain way is actually a very complex psychological phenomenon rooted in Poland's specific history. Okay, I mean, you um, talk in fairly chilling terms about, you know, what, what the um, uh, government is doing, not just in terms of warping institutions from the media to the, the courts, but also just, you know, in terms of uh, the, the sheer nastiness of some of the kind of baiting of minorities, ministers saying things about the mixing of races being bad news and, uh, you know, sort of uh, anti-gay remarks as well. Um Unlike in some countries, this has a, a real figurehead, doesn't it? In Kaczynski, there's one brother still left. There used to be two of them. Who are these Kaczynskis and, and, and what's their individual story and how important is that for the way Poland's gone? The Kaczynski brothers were relatively junior minor functionaries within the Solidarity movement. Uh, Lech Kaczynski was more senior to Yaroslav. And in a sense, they, they had quite different, maybe complementary personalities, which was, relatively speaking, Lech Kaczynski was regarded as more, in inverted commas, normal. Uh, he was more uh, clubbable, more sociable, and he came from a more straightforward, conservative, patriotic, so-called tradition in Polish politics, whereas his Brother Yaroslav, who famously, uh, even as prime minister, has never even had a bank account um, uh, and was very isolated, both in terms of uh, not being close to really anyone in terms of friends or family, never having a partner, never really engaging with the outside world. Rather, He rather dabbled in the dark arts, um, conspiracy theories, 
um, and uh, whipping up sentiments against uh, various uh, internal and external enemies, real and imagined, suggesting, for example, that Angela Merkel is Stasi agent or that, uh, that modern Germany still had designs on Polish territory and so on. And uh, but but between them, they were a quite potent force because Yaroslav was a, was the great uh, strategist, and Lech Kaczynski gave the the twins a made them more palatable for for wider uh, wider society. Uh, and they were they were a very potent force, and they built their careers on the idea that the the transition uh, from communism to capitalism and to liberal democracy was to some extent a sham set up uh, in the interests of uh, liberal and former communist elites and not for the interests of the wider uh, wider population. Um, and this argument had a lot of force in the 90s and the sort of early to mid-2000s, but they it lost its force when it became clear that they were deploying it uh, purely out of political self-interest and that there was very little principle involved at all. Um, and they, they really faded from view in the late 2000s until this extraordinary episode when a plane carrying Lech Kaczynski, when he was at that time the president of Poland, uh, crashed in the forests of Russia, in the same forests in which 20,000 Polish uh, army officers had been, had been murdered by the Soviet NKVD during the Second World War, which gave it this great historical resonance. And in a sense, the death of Lech Kaczynski and dozens of very, very senior Polish uh, officials um, at that time somehow resonated with something uh, deep in the Polish psyche in terms of Poland's tragic history being uh, inevitably repeating itself. And this, this idea of this great struggle against internal and external enemies being an being an eternal struggle that can never be can never cease. So, so, so this this connects a bit potentially with where where we go next. It, it, yeah. Is, I mean, so it crashed in Russian territory. Uh, the, the 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 kind of more palatable twin. And um, I mean, is that seen as I, I, I looked up that the the Kremlin was saying we're terribly sorry and coming to the funeral and all of that. I mean, was this seen as something the Russians had done? What did this do to Poland's orientation? Of course, when there's such an event uh, like the very traumatic event, and I, I was in Warsaw on, on the day it happened, when the president, not just the president, but the president and, and scores of senior officials, I mean, the head of the, of the armed forces, the head of all of the armed forces, the head of the security services, the head of the National Bank, uh, the head of the uh, Institute of National Memory, various uh, the former president in exile, um, uh, one could go on and on, all died at a stroke in Russia, which of course has obvious historical associations for Poland. This question of uh, whether people thought that Russia did it, um, I, I think a minority of Poles have ever thought that, that the Russians actually shot down the plane and so on. But what uh, Law and Justice rather cleverly and extremely cynically did was never to actually spell out what their allegation was. They suggested that, for example, the Polish government at the time, which was run by the opposition, rather, not the opposition, the... Uh, the so uh, Law and Justice through Lech Kaczynski had the presidency... But the Polish government was run by Donald Tusk's civic, pro-European 
moderate centre-right civic platform party. Mm. And so really the, the, the insinuation of law and justice was not so much that Vladimir Putin had in a sort of straightforward way bombed the plane and killed the president, although of course there were some people that claimed that, but that somehow the Polish liberals and the Kremlin had somehow been complicit if not in the actual attack, but in covering up the truth about the attack because there was some politically inconvenient truths surrounding this flight or surrounding this mission of the of the president to go and commemorate um, uh, these Polish soldiers who'd been killed. And the law and justice's suggestion had always been that Polish liberals were essentially traitors who had done deals over the heads of ordinary Poles with hostile foreign powers. And those hostile foreign powers could be Russia, most obviously, but they could equally be Western powers, not just Germany, but Britain, France, uh, even the United States in certain circumstances, and and uh, the, the European Union. So it's, it's not just that they are pro-Western or anti-Russian or vice versa. Mm. It's rather a mentality of accusing fellow compatriots of treachery by by somehow by selling out the nation by by doing private deals with uh, with other countries and of course this this happened in polish history and so uh, this was never exactly spelt out what happened uh, or, or rather it was never spelt out what the exact allegation is or was about uh, around Smolensk. So, so, Rather, so it's a slightly sort of paranoid, encircled kind of mindset you're, you're describing. Precisely. But what, what happened was the, the dispute of us over Smolensk, um, it, just as an example, if Poland uh, really believed, if the Polish government or the Polish authorities really believed that the Russians had killed their, killed their president, or even been in some ways had been involved in the, the death of their president. This would be such an obvious act of war, then of course you would go straight to NATO and you would invoke Article 5 and you would bring other countries on board in response. Poland, including when uh, the Polish government is insinuating that Russia may have been responsible, has of course never done this because the authorities know that it's not the case and they've never believed it was the case. It was simply uh, something to whip up extremely toxic feelings within Polish society and really to create two parallel realities in terms of what you believe about Smolensk. Do you believe there was some conspiracy involved or not? And these two parallel realities, although they already existed to some extent in Polish society, were electrified and consolidated by this single event, which, which was Smolensk. And of course, in Britain, we've had something broadly similar, which is uh, a division exists within society, but it takes a a concrete historical political event for these two sides to really um, really become so apparent. The difference being that this had a sort of emotional resonance um, um, that went beyond anything that, that Brexit did, because this was not only the deaths of all the people on the plane, but it echoed with the deaths of however many hundreds of thousands or millions of Poles throughout the ages um, at the hands of foreign powers. And this was extremely potent. And uh, to this extent, every analysis of what happened in Poland, which you might get from social scientists or economists or political scientists or whatever, talking about Central Europe as a region or even Europe or the West more widely, 
This, in my view, what's happening in Poland would not have happened without Smolensk. And this is a very uh, specific, culturally specific event. But and yet for your for your bigger story, in a way, this is a, it's quite a swerve because obviously you can see and you've explained very clearly there how it gives rise to a kind of um, you know uh, enemy within and enemies without kind of mindset. And yet you say the thing that struck you most in these last five years wasn't suspicion about what was going on to the east in Russia. It was an outpouring of anti-Western sentiment. Um, and remarkably, you know, this is. Uh, coming, including from the original Western institution, in a sense, the Roman Catholic Church. So just tell us how you get from kind of suspicion of all outsiders, maybe with special reference to Russia, to suspicion of all outsiders, what you're saying is, is creeping into it, with special reference maybe to the West. Of course. Well, uh, I think any British person, just as an example who has spent a time in Poland, will be reminded by someone at some point uh, by the effects of Yalta, the Yalta Conference. 1944. 1940, yeah, yes, yes. The, the, I mean, the, towards the end of the Second World War, when the Allies, uh, Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin, well, of course, Roosevelt and Stalin were much more influential in that process, uh, essentially agreed that Poland, despite being, uh, despite already having been invaded and occupied by the Soviet Union and hundreds of thousands of people deported and dying uh, in Siberia. Um, the crime of Katyn in 1940, which was the, the murder of the, West, of the Polish officers at the hands of the NKVD, uh, that it was agreed by the Western powers. Of course, whether or not they had any choice is a separate, is a, is a, is a separate question, but the point is from the Polish uh, perspective that Britain and America sold them out to the uh, to the Soviet Union and uh, condemned them to this 40 years of Soviet communism and all the misery uh, the misery that came to that so it's not just that Russia committed uh, various crimes of occupation and invasion and so on uh, over the centuries but of course that the pavidious west would talk about defending Poland or talk about being close to Poland and so on but that in the end the west would would uh, would betray them uh, of course, uh, that, that's one aspect of it, but that's thinking about the West and, in a sort of Anglo-Saxon terms. But of course, the West, from a Polish perspective, also includes Germany, which Poland, for obvious reasons, uh, has extremely painful historical experiences and not just the Second World War, which is completely uh, obvious, um, because uh, when it comes to Germany, you have the added extremely important factor of the Holocaust. But also, of course, the Austrian and Prussian uh, partitions of Poland going back to the 19th century and the, the forced depolonization policies of those, uh, of those empires over, uh, uh, over a century. So the, the West is um, not just Britain and America and France, it's also Germany, which, which, which makes it very difficult. And of course, in, in Polish politics, there's always been a pro- Russian or rather an anti-Western orientation, which is essentially political, which is um, the authoritarian strand uh, in Polish politics, which has always been there, which is and which has always competed with the democratic strand, has traditionally been pro pro-Russian because of course uh, Russia is the great autocracy of, of Europe. Um, and so uh, this idea that all Poles have always been instinctively anti-Russian and pro-Western is simply not the case. 
historically speaking. Of course, Russia's reputation took a terrible damage, not just from uh, uh, from the crimes of the um, of the Second World War, but of course, the communist system was so clearly a total failure um, that this um, this damaged uh, you know, the reputation of the Russian influence for a generation. Uh, but these things are very highly political, uh, as we know. <laughs> As people who live in the West, what it means, what the West means, is very highly contested at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, when we say the West, do we mean liberal democracy rooted in the Enlightenment tradition of human rights and uh, uh, democracy and equality for all minorities, whether they be racial, religious, sexual, uh, or whatever, or do we mean the West in terms of Christendom? what is now becoming fashionable to call the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, in America, which is a phrase we're starting to hear in in uh, 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 Britain a, a little bit more. And I would point to uh, a speech which I witnessed, an event that I witnessed, which was Donald Trump coming to Warsaw in 2017 and giving a speech that what, that simultaneously was a direct challenge and criticism of the Western order uh, as it is now, but uh, presented in terms of saving Western civilization from itself. Um, And this is the great uh, division. Uh, And I I think this is something that I I wanted to, to do in the piece, but I think is extremely important, is to say that our individual culture wars that we're having in basically every Western country to a greater or lesser extent, of course, are being magnified into a almost a continent-wide culture war, uh, which is being played out at the moment in various different uh, different forums uh, over what it means to be uh, to be a Western country. What does Western civilization mean? Just to give a um, very brief example. You saw a a, um, clash at the European Council just in the last week uh, between uh, people like the the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte and the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban over Hungary's uh, various homophobic legislation, uh, exclusionary and uh, and reactionary legislation to do with LGBT communities uh, in Hungary, which has which started as a domestic issue and which now is moving up uh, the levels to the extent to which the Dutch prime minister is saying to the Hungarian prime minister, well, why don't you just leave if that's if that's what you really want? Uh, and of course, uh, sitting in Warsaw, it was clear that this was going to happen. It's just that it took some time for the Western, for Western countries, and now I, I mean Western European countries, yeah. uh, to notice that these divisions within countries in Central Eastern Europe um, would spill out into a continent-wide and even a, 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 a split uh, throughout the West. Um, and Poland, uh, partly because of what happened uh, with Crimea, I'd say 10 years ago, Russia was the country to which uh, those on the right and maybe you, you might say the hard right, hardline conservatives in North America and Western Europe would look to it as an inspiration. Uh, that so the idea that, that Russia represents true uh, conservative values and um, the traditional family and so on 
that, that Russia as an inspiration has taken uh, terrible damage because of its uh, actions in, uh, uh, in Ukraine and Crimea. It's so obviously a threat, to the, a direct threat to the, to the West, that actually Russia has been replaced now by Central European countries like Poland and Hungary because their suffering at the hands of totalitarian powers makes it so much easier to present them in, in grander historical terms as the historic victims of, um, of totalitarianism. First, Soviet and Nazi totalitarianism, but now uh, what uh, some conservatives in the West now regard as European, Brussels and Berlin-led totalitarianism or the totalitarianism of liberal values. And this was, uh, this was precisely what Viktor Orban was trying to argue in the European Council, um, that liberal values are the new totalitarianism. And that was also the argument of Donald Trump in Warsaw in 2017. And so this is how a ostensibly pro-Western um, uh, country can also be anti-Western in, ter um, in terms of its rhetoric. Wow. On that stunning, depressing and uh, swervy uh, note, we're going to have to draw things to uh, a close. But thank you very much, Christian, both for the piece, which uh, listeners can dig out online by Christian Davis. And thank you uh, to all of you who are listening for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 